Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very pleased once more here on Accessible World's special program series to welcome our dear friend Ira Fistel, who's going to talk to us about the Transcontinental Railroad and other, uh, other matters in his history of railroading in America. Ira, welcome, uh, and the telephone in this case is yours. Well, hi there. Thank you very much. Uh, actually, I'm not going to start with the Transcontinental. I'm going to finish with that tonight. But uh, this is part two of what will probably wind up being about a four-part uh, segment all about the history of railroads in the North and North America, in the United States and Canada, primarily in the United States. Anyway, in the first set last week, I talked about, uh, not last week, last month or whatever it was, uh, I talked about the geography of North America and uh, the... Uh, Mike O'Brien. Settlement. Hello? Mike O'Brien, Troy, New York. Oh, thank you, Mike O'Brien. I'm Ira. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, Ira Fidel. Yes. Uh, I remember you. In the opening one that I did, the first uh, first part of this, about uh, the background, and I talked about the... Um, Mike, we welcome you, but Ira's begun his lecture, so if you could mute star six, uh, then you can make all the noise and still listen, okay? Star six is a, a, a toggle, so... Uh, right. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't realize you I didn't realize that. I'm sorry. Start at the beginning, please. Now, wait a minute. What's going on? Should I start over again? Start over because Mike came in, and why don't you do that? I think someone else did, too. All right. Well, I'll start from the beginning, then. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, the first talk of this series, which is going to be, I think, about a four-part series. This is the second part. In the first part, I talked about the laws of physics and how they apply to transportation. And I talked about geography, and I talked about a little bit of history, and got up to the point where, in England, the Industrial Revolution began with Jamie Watt and the steam engine. And by 1825... Uh, George and Robert Stevenson, a father and son team of engineers, uh, successfully developed the railroad as a steam-powered, rail-guided way of moving goods and, for, and people from one place to another. And I also talked about the fact that uh, the gauge that the Stevensons adopted the distance between the rails was influenced by the Roman roads in England, which by that time were something like 1,800 years old with ruts in them, 1,800 years of, year of ruts. And that's how the gauge, which became known as the Stevenson gauge at that time, and is now called standard gauge in this country, Canada, and Western Europe. And that's how come... It's four feet, eight and a half inches between the rail, between the two running rails. All right. Um, 1825 is a huge year in the history of transportation in the United States. After the Revolutionary War, there was very little land transportation possible in this country. About the only thing you could do was ride a horse and... If you had a trail, you could uh, ride on the trail. That helped. But there were very few roads. There were very few ways of getting around by, on land other than on horseback or walking. By the time of the War of 1812, this became a major problem. Uh, it was difficult to move on land, and at the end of the War of 1812, Eric Smiley, something very important happened. The British evacuated the forts that they had been holding on the uh, Appalachian here and gave the colonials on the East Coast, by now they, uh, the British removed their forts and their alliance with the Indians 
and they allowed settlers to move from the original colonies on the east coast over the Appalachian Mountains. Ira, one moment. We had a new person come in to a star six to mute, and a star six brings you back when you want to ask a question. So, uh, gentlemen, could you do a star six? All right. Okay, go ahead, Ira. I'm sorry. Thank you. All right. Now, if you remember correctly, the central area of the United States was if settled at all, settled largely by Frenchmen coming from Quebec and Montreal, who came down the St. Lawrence River and through the Great Lakes and into Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Lake Erie, and down the Mississippi River by portage. They would portage their canoes from the... Chicago River or the St. Joseph River uh, into the Kankakee River or the Des Plaines River or the Illinois River and then get down into the Mississippi. And also they went through the Wisconsin River uh, coming down from Green Bay and portaging overland. Well, portaging was fine for a couple of Frenchmen in a canoe, uh, canoe rather, <laughs> but it uh, was not practical transportation in the of goods and services on a large scale. So when in England, the Stevensons demonstrated how a steam-powered railroad could move goods and services far faster, the speed of a canal boat was four miles an hour at best. Uh, That's about a little better than walking speed. That's when your mule is pulling the canal boat along at four miles an hour. Stevenson's locomotive, the rocket, could run four times that fast and pull a lot more weight. So the idea of the steam locomotive was demonstrated beyond any question in England as early as 1825. Meanwhile, in America, the... Uh, pressure to open the central part of the country to settlement and to send crops and uh, out and bring materials in caused the state of New York to build with the uh, leadership of the governor, DeWitt Clinton, a canal from Schenectady on the Mohawk River to Buffalo on Lake Erie. And, of course, they called it the Erie Canal. And I explained in this first, uh, the first part of this four-part series how the Erie Canal transformed the East Coast of the United States. In the 19th century, New York was not the biggest city in the United States until after 1825. Philadelphia was the biggest. Boston was the oldest. Charleston, South Carolina was one of the most prosperous. And all of those cities had a back country uh, to which they could, uh, you know, uh, transfer goods and services easily by water. However, the geography of the nation means that on the East Coast, the Appalachian Mountains are very close to the coastline not more than 150 miles and sometimes right at the coastline up in Maine. So that meant that Boston's backcountry was limited. Philadelphia's was bigger than Boston's, but there was still a mountain range, the Appalachian Range, in what is now Pennsylvania, about uh, maybe 150, 200 miles west of Philadelphia. And mountain ranges are barriers to water commerce. Water refuses to run uphill. And so canals were very difficult to use where you had mountains. Impossible, almost impossible to use. Also, canals, while they were very good because uh, they were water transported, I mentioned about how friction is the great barrier to land transportation. And boats on water have much less friction to overcome than anything riding on land, even a wheeled vehicle. However, 
canals have a bad habit of freezing up in the winter. They're only good for transportation perhaps 10 months a year at the most in climates like you had in northern North America. So the, the canal system, while it was very much of an improvement and while it made New York City the great port of the country, was not perfect. It had problems also, especially where there was rough terrain and you have to build a lot of uh, locks into your canal and they were slowed and they, uh, the canals froze in the winter. So there was room for another way of transportation. That's why 1825 was such a big year, because the Erie Canal demonstrated how important transportation into the interior of the country was going to be and how farm products and uh, you know cattle, whatever, could be transported on a canal boat to the cities on the East Coast and bricks and the timber and all those kind of things, building materials, iron goods, imported things, clothes, things like that, uh, could be sent back into the interior so that there was a great demand for better transportation. And in England, the Stevensons demonstrated how it could be done. Well, Boston dreamt of a uh, route to the interior of the country, but it had a handicap of its own to, to get past, and that was the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts. The people of Boston planned to build a tunnel through the Berkshire Mountains. But in 1825, 26, 1827, it wasn't practical. They didn't have the means to build a fairly long tunnel. Eventually, the tunnel did get built. It's still there to this day. It's called the Hoosick Tunnel. And it does uh, take commerce from Boston to the interior and vice versa today. However, by the time the Hoosick Tunnel was built, Boston had fallen hopelessly behind New York in the race to be the great port of the East Coast. There was also a second problem for Boston, even after they got past the Hoosick Mountains and the, the Berkshire Mountains and the Hoosick Tunnel, even after that was built, they were still only in New York State. <laughs> Who's running the canal in New York State? But the state of New York, and uh, it's much further from Boston, and Boston still could not compete with New York even after the tunnel was built. Philadelphia, the biggest city in North America in the 18th century, second biggest English-speaking in the world, English-speaking city in the world in the late 18th century. But Philadelphia had the same handicap Boston had, a mountain range 150 or 200 miles west. In the 18th, late 1820s, the business people of Philadelphia began uh, to build a system of canals uh, built by the state of Pennsylvania. These canals were to connect Philadelphia with Pittsburgh on the Ohio River, at the mouth of the Ohio River, not the mouth, at the uh, conjunction where the Allegheny and Mahongahela come together and form the Ohio. But I mentioned that water won't run uphill, and even in Philadelphia and even in Pennsylvania, they couldn't make water run uphill. So what did they do? They devised a system of canals unlike anything else in the world. The canal boats were built in sections. There were three sections to a canal boat. The first section would be pulled by horses from the exchange in Philadelphia, the streets of Philadelphia, out to uh, Hollidaysburg, I believe it was, uh, where a series of inclined planes began. And a stationary steam engine at the top of the plane would pull the canal boats up in sections, one section of a canal boat to a cart. And the stationary steam engine would go chomping away, 
and up the uh, inclined plane would go the section of the canal boat. And there were seven inclined planes on the eastern side going up to the top of the mountains and seven inclined planes going back down the other way. And this was a, so cumbersome, it was, it's almost unbelievable that it actually did work after a fashion. When they got back down to the uh, canal on the west side of the mountains, the three parts of the canal boat would be put together again, and they'd go off down the canal to Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, it was a little bit on the cumbersome side. It was expensive, it was slow, and it still had the handicap of, of freezing canals in winter. But it did work up, you know, after a fashion. It was finished in 1834, and for about 20 years or so, the Pennsylvania Canal System remained in service. All right, that's what Philadelphia tried. Baltimore, which is a port city, as you know, and Chesapeake Bay, had another answer. Somebody in Baltimore, whoever, whoever it was, who was leading the Baltimore uh, business at that time, came up with the idea of adopting Stevenson's railroad idea to reach the Ohio River. They got a charter from the state of Maryland, which called it the Baltimore and Ohio Railway. When they meant Ohio, it didn't mean the state of Ohio. Ohio wasn't a state yet. They meant the Ohio River. Okay? So the whole concept was to connect the port of Philadelphia on the Delaware River with the Ohio River, which led down to the Mississippi and all the way down to New Orleans. And uh, therefore, to tap the interior of the country on the west side of the Appalachian Mountains. Well, Philadelphia wanted to do it, Baltimore wanted to do it, but Baltimore tried the locomotive. They started out in Baltimore by building some track, about, uh, I don't know, 13 miles, something like that, and pulling wagons and uh, coaches by horsepower on this track. But in 1829, one of the stockholders in the Baltimore and Ohio was a man named Peter Cooper, if you ever lived in New York, you know the Cooper Union, which I think was a free engineering school for many years and is still an engineering school. Well, Peter Cooper demonstrated that he could build a locomotive. It only weighed about a ton. It was so small that he called it the Tom Thumb. But the Tom Thumb actually did run by steam power. And Peter Cooper demonstrated how it could run. He took it out on that track to, uh, that they had built in Baltimore, ran it out to Ellicott's Mills, about 13 miles, and it ran fine. And on the way back, a cart with a horse and a driver challenged Peter Cooper and the Tom Thumb to a race. There was a second track, so the horse was on uh, galloping along on one set of rails, and Peter Cooper and the Tom Thumb were riding along on the other set of rails. Well, the Tom Thumb was running ahead, as you'd expect, until a belt that had been used to connect the axle with the fan that was creating a draft to pull the smoke up and uh, make the fire uh, hot, the belt slipped. <laughs> the engine came to a complete stop, and the horse went dashing by, <laughs> and this uh, was the Pyrrhic victory to end all Pyrrhic victories. You know what a Pyrrhic victory is? A victory when the winner is actually the loser in the, out, in the long run. It's named for a Roman, uh, actually it's a Greek general in the service of Rome, uh, whose name was Pyrrhus. And he said, uh, one, one more like this, a victory that he had over the Romans, one more like this, and I am finished. Well, <laughs> the horse 
was finished as a, as a uh, carrier uh, in competition with a steam engine. So the Baltimore and Ohio went into service as early as 1829 with steam power. It wasn't long until the people of Baltimore had built more track and it took them about, I don't know, 20 years to get to the Ohio River, but they actually did do so. And the Baltimore and Ohio was a huge success. Now, to have steam power, you have to have steam locomotives, and somebody's got to build them. The first steam locomotives built in America were built in New York by the West Point Foundry. And they were based on locomotives that had been imported from England where the Stevensons built them. The imports were copied by the American builders. And before long, um, the West Point Foundry was turning out locomotives. And then other people started getting into the act of building locomotives. And several of them happened to be for reasons which I'll explain in a minute, watchmakers. In Philadelphia, there was a man named Matthias Baldwin, who was a watchmaker, who started building locomotives. Why would a watch builder be a man who would be uh, uh, inclined to build, try to build a locomotive? Because a locomotive has a lot of interlocking parts, moving parts, gears, cams, rods and last year when we were in Santa Barbara Rachel and I visited the uh, tower of the clock on the Santa Barbara City Hall and by golly it's full of exactly the kind of machinery that a watchmaker would be familiar with and make build big clocks as well as small watches and that kind of machinery was exactly what you needed to make steam power wheels. So those, Matthias Baldwin went into the locomotive business. So did a man named Phineas Davis in York, Pennsylvania. He was another watchmaker who built engines. I think there was a, uh, somebody named Norris who I think was, he also built locomotives. I think he was a watchmaker too. So anyway, the Americans began building their own locomotives. The earliest ones often had vertical boilers. When the uh, boiler was like a tea kettle, you know, uh, just like Jamie Watts' tea kettle, and when the steam came out of it, it worked walking beams, which were connected to rods under the engine, and which connected to cogs and made the wheels go round. But it wasn't long until the West Point Foundry came up with a locomotive that had a horizontal boiler, like 99% of all the steam locomotives ever built. The first one I can think of built in America with a horizontal boiler was called the DeWitt Clinton. Guess where it ran? The Erie Canal ended in Schenectady. And you had to go over the Mohawk River into Albany. Well, there was rapids there, and it was difficult to travel on that Mohawk River in a boat. So the Mohawk and Hudson Railroad was built to connect the Erie Canal with the Hudson River, Schenectady with Albany. And there you had the DeWitt Clinton puffing along, with its uh, smokestack uh, throwing off sparks and burning all the canvas covers on the coaches that were stagecoaches put on uh, iron wheels. And uh, it must have been quite a trip. <laughs> People's clothes burned, hats burned off. Uh, it was um, perilous, to say the least. But it worked. So that was one of the other early lines in America. In Charleston, South Carolina, they also decided to build a uh, locomotive. They got it built by the West Point Foundry, and the uh, West Point at that point 
was still building locomotives with uh, vertical boilers. And the one it built for the people of Charleston, business people in Charleston, was called the best friend of Charleston. Why? Because Charleston had a rival, Savannah, Georgia. And Charleston wanted to control the trade of the interior, as it had traditionally done, when this upstart Savannah starts sending steamboats across the Atlantic. The very first steamboat to cross the Atlantic was called, wouldn't you know it, the Savannah. It was actually a sailing ship with a steam engine that was used part of the time. Most of the time they got by using the wind, but it wasn't long until steam locomotives, not steam, I'm sorry, steam-powered boats were big enough and strong enough to challenge the clippers and to turn the Atlantic and other seas into steam-powered routes for trans, uh, trans-world travel. So Charleston began to worry about the fact that the Savannah River divides South Carolina from Georgia. And the traffic from Georgia was liable to go down the Savannah River to the port of Savannah. Charleston undoubtedly was not happy with that idea. And so they tried building a railroad. Uh, They built six miles of it in 1830. And the best friend of Charleston was running on that track, but not for too long. (laughs) This is one of the classic stories of all time. The fireman on the best friend of Charleston one day was sick and tired of hearing the safety valve pop off. Now, with a steam boiler, of course, you have to have a safety valve. Uh, If you get too much steam, it blows up the boiler. So you have a valve that lets the steam out, just like a tea kettle. That's why a tea kettle whistles. Well, the uh, fireman decided he didn't want to hear the steam escaping, and he tied the safety valve down. And guess what happened to the best friend of Charleston? It blew up. (laughs) But by that time, the South Carolina Railroad had also received a second engine from the West Point uh, foundry, and its name was the West Point. They had a lot of imagination in those days. All right. So those were the first earliest lines in uh, in the United States, some of the first early ones, the ones with American-built engines. There were also others. In 1829, uh, there was a firm called the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, which was built to haul basically coal from the Delaware River mines, the uh, mines along the Delaware River, to the Hudson, where it could be sent to New York. Well, this was 1829. The uh, canal was dug, most of it was dug, but the last few miles of it, the terrain was too rough and the canal would have been too expensive and too difficult to build. So, a man named Horatio Allen, who was the operating head of the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, was sent to England to buy and bring back a Stevenson-built locomotive. He went to a firm in Sturbridge, England, which built a locomotive called the Lion. Sturbridge Lion, and it had a picture of a lion painted on the front of it. And Horatio Allen brought it back to America. What do you suppose the gauge of the Sturbridge Lion was? Four feet, eight and a half, like the Stevenson gauge, just because of those Roman roads and all the ruts in them, and uh, how the Roman roads and the ruts got translated to the distance between the wheels of carts, And then when you started putting the carts on rails, it was the distance between the rails. And so the Sturbridge Lion was built to a four-foot, eight-and-a-half-inch gauge. Horatio Allen got it to America all right, but everybody was afraid of it. Uh, The track was kind of weak. It was wooden timbers with steel, not steel, uh, iron on top of it. 
So Mr. Allen took it on a ride for himself, by himself. He was the only one aboard. And it took, uh, well, whatever it was, uh, half an hour, an hour to go to six miles. And then he brought it back to the town. Meanwhile, they found that the track was all torn up by the engine when it ran over it. The engine was too heavy for the track. So what did they do? They turned the Sturbridge Lion into a stationary steam engine. And it worked for many, many years as a stationary engine hauling things up with the, you know, with ropes. But later on, the Sturbridge Lion was rebuilt. And today, you will find it in the Smithsonian in Washington. Okay, another early locomotive and an early railroad was the Camden and Amboy. Now, here we have Camden. Uh, if you know anything about the uh, geography of New Jersey, Camden is a port on the uh, Delaware River directly opposite Philadelphia. Amboy is in northern New Jersey, some, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 miles north, and it is on the ocean. So the idea was to connect the ocean with the Delaware River by rail. They went out to England and bought a locomotive. All right, what do you think the name of the locomotive was? The John Bull. <laughs> John Bull, you know, of course, is a symbol for England. Anyway, they brought the, the John Bull back to America. It was a, a horizontal boiler locomotive, and it had a what we call by the system that's used to uh, designate how wheels are described on a steam locomotive a zero four zero. That means it had four wheels, only four wheels all of which were powered. It didn't have any leading wheels or trailing wheels. And most of the early locomotives were built that way. So was the DeWitt Clinton. Uh, so was the best friend of Charleston. And they were all built on a rigid frame. And these four-wheel locomotives uh, ran on bad track and, uh, and sometimes had troubles with the track and uh, did things to the track and wasn't the best situation of all time. But nobody had done anything about it before the Camden and Amdoy. The master mechanic on the Camden and Amdoy Railroad was a young man whose name, unforgettably, was Isaac Drips. <laughs> Poor Mr. Drips. Uh, what would you do if you were named Isaac Drips? You'd trade your name, wouldn't you? And imagine what his wife must have felt. Uh, being married and being Mrs. Drips. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Isaac Drips had a great imagination. American railway lines were not well fenced off. Fencing was expensive. And to build a fence it took a lot of time and it took a lot of uh, effort. So uh, they didn't build any. But that meant that animals could wander onto the tracks, and of course they did. Isaac Drips came up with a solution. He put a pair of small wheels ahead of the John Bull and put a platform out in front of the engine so that if there would be a wooden uh, structure that would push animals off the track if they were on the track when the, when the John Bull showed up. Isaac Drips will never be forgotten because he invented the cow catcher. Uh, to this day, you will never see a British locomotive with a cow catcher because the railroads in England were built well fenced in and well grade separated. They were much more... Uh, expensively built. Why? Because there was, first of all, there was, a, there was money available in England. The Industrial Revolution had been going on longer. Secondly, the distances are so much shorter so that you didn't have to build a solid 
right of way for many, many ways, many, 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 many miles. Uh, in England, the, what we call the right of way is to this day called the permanent way. It was built to be permanent, and boy, it was. American railroads were largely sketchily built. Uh, they used wooden timbers to cross streams or rivers. Uh, they didn't have stone uh, walls alongside. Uh, they avoided uh, hills by putting in curves uh, going around the hill, whereas in Britain you would have uh, dug through the hill. Um, so anyway, those were some of the differences between the American railroads and the English railroads. And you'll still see that if you go to Britain these days, you'll notice how much solid, more solidly built the older British lines are than what you'd see in America. Okay, we're now up to about 1930, I'm 19, about up to about 1837. 1837 was a bad year for the economy of the United States. The states had been spending huge amounts of borrowed money building canals and roads and, and some of them railways. And when the bonds were due to be paid off, the states couldn't pay. They didn't have the money. So there was a panic. And uh, a panic in 1837, we would call today a depression. And in 1837, banks went broke. States went, had no money. They had to sell off things, the uh, properties that they had begun, uh, you know, canals or railways. They had to sell off those partially built things. And there was a hiatus in the railroad fever that was uh, raging in the 1830s. But about 1845, about eight years after the panic of 1837, uh, the economy had stabilized enough that there was money available again to start building projects that had been abandoned and also new projects. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad eventually reached the Ohio River. In about 1845, 46, 47, the uh, state of Illinois had begun a north-south railway to connect Cairo, and it is pronounced Cairo, where the Mississippi and the Ohio come together, with Galena in the northwest corner of Illinois. Galena means lead, and that region of northern Illinois was a lead mining region. So was the adjacent region in Wisconsin. And if you go up to Galena today, it's a quaint old town. Um, it was a mining town. And the idea was to ship the lead ore, lead is very heavy, to ship the lead ore from Galena to Cairo and down the Mississippi River and then off to Europe or wherever. So the original line of the Illinois Central was chartered in the 18. 50, no, we were before that, 1840-something. Oh, you figured, why was it built from Galena? What about Chicago? Well, Chicago wasn't in existence until 1837. <laughs> uh, Fort Dearborn had been a uh, federal fort, which was wiped out in the War of 1812 by the Indians. And there was a settler or two in the, around there, but it wasn't a town until 1833 or a city until 1837. So when the Illinois Central was resumed, construction was resumed in the 1840s, they added, quote, a branch line, quote, to Chicago on the Great Lakes. By that time, Chicago already had its own railroads. They didn't connect with anything. But in 1849, a locomotive was bought secondhand from the East Coast and brought by uh, ocean, not ocean, by, bought by lake boat to Chicago and put on tracks 
leading west from Chicago to the grain fields and corn fields west of the city. The locomotive was called the Pioneer. It not only still exists, it's one of the major exhibits in the Chicago Historical Museum. The Pioneer had only two driving wheels, but it had four pilot wheels. So the idea that the John Bull used of using pilot wheels had caught on, and many locomotives after 1835 or so were built with pilot wheels in the United States. Not true in England. Um, but where the track is rougher, you need the pilot wheels more, and that's what you have in the United States. So anyway, the Pioneer was put to work by William Butler Ogden, who was later the mayor of Chicago, and hauling farm produce from the farmers in the land west of Chicago to the port of Chicago to be shipped east uh, by grain boats and through the Erie Canal and down to New York. It wasn't long before some other people got ideas of building railroads out of Chicago, and there were three of them by the 1850s, all going in a westerly direction from the city, distances extending as far as the east bank of the Mississippi River at Rock Island, Illinois. And we'll talk about that road a little bit later. All right, and then there was also one that uh, went to Quincy, Illinois, and Burlington, Iowa, and, uh, you know, on the Mississippi. And all those lines were in operation by the middle 1850s. The Illinois Central arrived in Chicago in 1852. Uh, no, 1856, I'm sorry, 1856. The first lines from the east reached Chicago early in the 1850s. The Michigan Central was chartered in, by the state of Michigan and experienced the same problems uh, with the Panic of 1837 that so many others did. But by 1852, it had reached the city of Chicago by the ruse of contracting with a railroad in Indiana, which had a charter saying that it could build anywhere in the state of Indiana. So the Michigan Central wanted to get from Michigan to Chicago, and to do that, they made a deal with this line that was going north and south in Indiana, and they used the charter of that line to have the, the track built through northern Indiana across from east to west, and that's how they got into Chicago. That was the first line from the east. Within a few years, there were several lines from the east, one from Pittsburgh, um, a little bit later from Toledo, Ohio, um, coming in from a uh, branch of the Baltimore and Ohio. Uh, and the Chicago was firmly tied to the East Coast by the middle of the 1850s. Now, here are the figures. This is going to be tell you the whole story in a nutshell. The first railroad in America was 1829. By 1840... Despite the panic, there were about 2,800 miles of railroad track in the United States. But the panic of 1837 stopped construction on a lot more. Between 1840 and 1850, the amount of track in America quadrupled to over 9,000 miles. By 1860, 10 years later, it had tripled again, and over 30,000 miles of track were in operation by 1860. All right. The interesting thing about all this is the original conception of railways was to carry goods between water, waterways and ports. Uh, they were tied to water transport as a, as a way of feeding the water transport, which was still the cheapest, least expensive way. But nobody thought in the early years, 1830s, for example, nobody thought that railroads would be built that would connect with each other and form a national network, even a statewide network. That didn't happen until the 1840s after the Paddock of 1837. 
So each railway was free to choose its own gauge. There wasn't any reason to to uh, have a standard gauge because you didn't expect to connect with anything except boats. Nor did you have common terminals. The city of Richmond, Virginia, in 1860, just before the secession of Virginia and the Civil War began, had five railroads coming into the city. No one of them connected with any of the other four. There were five separate terminals for five separate railways going in five different directions and no coordination whatsoever between them. During the Civil War, the Confederacy managed to build tracks down the middle of Main Street in Richmond to connect a couple, at least a couple of those lines together. Uh, the Civil War had a huge impact on uh, on the railroads, and we'll talk about that just in, just uh, soon. Up anyway, the railroads now, by 1855 or 1856 became, just 25 years after or 30 years after the first ones, uh, were the dominant form of transportation. They created the first great industry in America. The railroads were the great industry, and they created the iron and ore, iron and steel industry. The iron industry first. There was no such thing as steel until about 1861 or 62, when Sir Henry Bessemer in England and somebody else in the United States invented the blast furnace to turn iron into steel. So when you hear somebody talking about steel rails in 1840, you know they don't know what they're talking about. It was iron up until uh, the 1850s, the 1860s, actually. Um, but the iron and steel industry was created by the railroads and for the railroads. Another industry that the railroads had a big hand in was the telegraph lines. Samuel Finley, Finney Breeze Morse, who was an artist and a portrait painter, invented the telegraph in 1844, and he invented the code that was used to send messages on the uh, electric wires, the Morse code, dot, 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 dash, 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 you know. Telegraph wires needed metal, and particularly copper. And copper became a big industry, smelting. Copper had to be moved from one place to another, and it was moved largely by water and by rail when necessary. Steel we don't have yet, but iron was moved from one place to another. Uh, so construction was a big part of the railway business. And in fact, the builders soon found that the money was not to be made in running the railroad. It was made in building the railroad. That's how you made the big money. Once it started running, it did, it did fine. But uh, uh, the big money was made by taking the, the property and uh, converting it into cash and then converting it to rails. All right. Now let's think of what had happened by eighteen by eighteen sixty. Look again at the geography of the North American continent. You have a seacoast uh, from Maine to Florida with a mountain range slanting in the southwesterly direction from Maine, where it's very near the water, in fact, right by the water, uh, westward as well as southward, until the mountain chain runs out in Alabama. So that the further south you go, there's the more coastal plain there is. Where is the coastal plain in uh, the northeast, in uh, New England? It's underwater. No, uh, the, the plain that leads up to the mountains is underwater. And that meant fish. And that meant boats. And boats came to be ships. And ships meant commerce, transatlantic commerce. 
And uh, transatlantic commerce was turned into cash, money. And in the South, where uh, where uh, crops were grown more than fishing or uh, commerce, uh, the money was put into slaves and land. In the North, it was put into banks and it financed construction. And that's one reason, it's pointed out by uh, historians, one reason why the North dominated was the richer section, because the North used the profits from its commerce to in- invest in other businesses, whereas the investment in the South was almost all in land and slaves. And the land and slaves only paid off as long as cotton was king. Um, well, that's another story. But anyway, the North developed a network of railroads connected to each other as early as the 1850s. The South had very much less of that. All right. When you get past the Appalachian Mountains, which we just talked about, there's a huge central region of the United States extending from the Appalachians to the Rockies, something like a 1,500 or 2,000 miles, drained by an enormous river system, the Mississippi, Ohio, Missouri uh, river system, with all of its tributaries. That huge region, I mentioned before, was first explored by the French coming down from Quebec. All right? Then there's another mountain range, the Rockies. And beyond the Rocky Mountains, you have desert, and you have another Sierra range, the Sierras, and then you have the Pacific Coast. People coming up from Mexico, first Spaniards and later Mexicans themselves, uh, the Spanish came up from the south and settled New Mexico as early as 1612. Most people don't know this, but the oldest capital city in the United States is nowhere near the East Coast. It's Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was the Spanish capital beginning, I think, in 1610, and is still the capital of New Mexico to this day. So what do you have? On the East Coast, the population was mostly English, with some Dutch, some German, some Swedes, but mostly English-speaking. In the central region, the predominant power was France. And the biggest city in the central region was Nouvelle-Orléans, New Orleans. And you'll have cities like Saint-Louis, St. Louis. Uh, what are some of the others? A whole bunch of all these French-speaking cities. Saint-Charles, Saint-Charles, uh, St. Francis, you know, Prairie du Chien, uh, Wisconsin means dog prairie. Uh, La Crosse means the cross. You know, all the French names are uh, are uh, remnants of the French domination of that central area. What do you find in uh, New Mexico and California? You find Spanish names because the original population was, in addition to the American Native Indians, Spanish. So, what if the steam locomotive had been invented in, say, 1600 instead of 1825? What kind of a country do you think you might have had? Or, now let's look at it the other way around. Supposing the steam locomotive hadn't been invented in 1825, but hadn't come along until, say, 1925. If you had had those years, those many years, without the railroads, you would have probably had three or four nation-states in North America divided according to the geography of the country so that the French in the central section and the British on the eastern section, the English on the eastern section, would have been two countries, not one. The Spaniards in the far west would have been a third country. And there are legend, you know, there are uh, things about American history that demonstrate that that would have been what happened. 
the French and Indian War, 1756 to 1763, was fought between the French and the British, and one of the objects was to keep the British out of the French territories in uh, what now is Illinois and uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and all that, that area. The Mexican War was fought when the English-speaking uh, people of the United States it began to uh, settle in large numbers in Texas and in California. And the Mexican War resulted in those formerly Spanish areas becoming part of the United States. But if it hadn't been for the power of steam, particularly steam power on the railroads, those things probably would not have happened. All right. And in other words, the steam locomotive and the iron rails transformed the geography of North America. They overcame the natural geography of the country, of the continent rather, which would have led to three or four separate regions divided by mountains and transportation by rivers north and you know flowing from north to south. Almost all American rivers flow north to south. There are only two, I think, that flow north. Um, so that you'd have had an English-speaking nation, a French-speaking nation, a Spanish-speaking nation. You might even have had a Russian-speaking nation because the Russians had settlements in northern California and owned Alaska, if you'll remember. But because of the power of steam... It trumped the geography of the country and tied the middle of the country, the uh, Mississippi region, the Mississippi Valley, and the Ohio Valley, and uh, the Great Plains, tied them to the East Coast rather than to the city of New Orleans, the great port of the 18th century in the north, in uh, Louisiana. So that New York, not Louisiana, not New Orleans, became the primary American export port. Philadelphia became a great port also, so did Baltimore. And all of them were fed by the railways. New York started with the Erie Canal. But what do you think happened to the Erie Canal? By 1850, there were railroads all the way along the Erie Canal <laughs> because it was faster, turned out to be less expensive, and didn't freeze up in the winter. So that the route of the Erie Canal is today the principal route between Chicago and New York by rail. From Chicago to Buffalo along the lakeshore, and then along the Erie Canal, the Mohawk River, and down the Hudson. When it was called the New York Central Railroad some years ago, their slogan was, we're the water level route because it didn't have to climb any mountain ranges. They followed the rivers and the uh, canals. So it's been said that if you were to try to rebuild the New York Central line from New York to Chicago by way of uh, Albany, you wouldn't need to change a single foot of that original survey. And it was that well done. All right. So we now have the situation as of approximately 1860. And as you know, the country broke apart when the southern states seceded after the election of Abraham Lincoln. Not that Lincoln was an abolitionist, because he really wasn't. But the southern states didn't believe that they could stay in the Union and uh, still maintain their peculiar institution of slavery. All right, the country had begun to come apart a good deal before that. Why? Because of the railroads. The railroads were the tool that brought large numbers of settlers from the East Coast, east of the Appalachians, into the great Midwestern region, and particularly to places like Kansas and Nebraska. 
those places didn't have railroads of their own, but they were reachable by the lines extending west from Chicago. And that created a problem, because what are you going to do if you're the country and it's half slave and half free? What are you going to do with all those new territories that are being settled? Are they going to be slave territories, or are they going to be free states? And you remember that since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, the whole government of the country was based on the proposition that every time there was a slave state entering the country, a free state came in with it, and every time a free state came in, a slave state came in with it. So that as, as of 1860, there were 15 free states. Well, no, it was 1850. There were 15 free states and 15 slave states. California which came in after the California Gold Rush in 1849, and California became a state in 1850, uh, 49, uh, upset the balance. And that was one of the reasons why the, the Southerners began to get less and less uh, happy with the prospects of the future. Because as long as the Senate was not controlled by a majority of free states, the Southerners could still say, well, we can always stop things in the Senate. But when there were more free states than slave states, that block was gone. The Southerners had also, in the Constitution, put in the three-fifths clause. Now, this is serious American history we're talking about here. The three-fifths clause allowed the slave states to count three-fifths of the numbers of their slaves as if they were white population. It doesn't mean that a slave was three-fifths of a man. That's a, that's a uh, misconception. But it did mean that the Southerners could count three-fifths of their slave population as if they were voting whites, which meant that the South was very much overrepresented in the House of Representatives. That was the intention. The intention was to give the South a veto over the federal government by making the South the permanent uh, majority section with the aid of the three-fifths rule. Unfortunately for the Southerners, it didn't work because the vast majority of immigrants coming into the country after 1776 chose not to go to the South where they would have to compete with unpaid labor they went to the north, everywhere in the north. And by, what well, I think, uh, very early, I think uh, almost uh, even in the 18th century, the Southerners had lost the control of the House of Representatives. And then they had to rely on the Senate and the presidency. And when they lost control of the Senate in 1850, they got even more nervous, and when a Lincoln, a, a northern sectional candidate who had no support in the South, won the election in 1860. That's when the southern states started to secede. Well, the railroads had a part in this, too. How much time do we have? I, will. I think we need to wrap up pretty soon here. I'm sorry, what? We need to wrap up pretty soon here, I think. All right, we need to wrap up? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I won't get as far as I was planning to get, but I'll pick it up right here how the railroads of America were involved in the Civil War and changed the whole country after the Civil War. We'll stop there, but let's see if we have any questions uh, from some of you guys. Unmute, star six, and ask your question of Ira. Don, did you have a question? I think I left you out last time. Don Queen, are you there? Okay. Mike O'Brien? Yes. Uh, you have a question of uh, Ira Pistel? Yes. Yes, sir. Please. Um, I will. Can you hear me? Yes. I hear you. Go ahead. Okay, good. Um, now, I was under the impression that the uh, Erie Canal started in Albany originally. I was at the, a site in Albany. As a matter of fact, it was supposed to be originally where it started. It's just It's kind of a ditch with some water in it. <laughs> yeah, it, and it was supposed to be Albany. But apparently, uh, either it was delayed being built from Albany to Schenectady, and they built the, the railway first, or else the uh, canal was too 
you know, too slow or too clogged or something. But the uh, people of Albany built that line to connect with the canal. It's connected. Yes. Yep. Interesting. And I always thought the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad started out as a canal, too, before it became a railroad. I thought that company started out as a canal. Well, no, the, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. Oh, the CNO. That was the oh. that's the CNO Canal, and that's still there in Washington. Wow. Mm, okay. Interesting. Uh, if you go to the Georgetown section of Washington, you can see the sea, and I think even right on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. No there kidding. was a canal company, uh, and when the CNO was a railroad uh, before it became you know, part of the Chesapeake system and then CSX, the CNO's advertising said original company chartered by George Washington in 17 whatever. Yep. Because it I started out as a question I have, Mike, those were great. The question I have is when do they get uniform gauging? Is there a story behind that? Later in another lecture <laughs> regarding gauging the gauges. No, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. When did they get uniform gauging? You you said. Oh, okay, that doesn't come until 1883. That's, okay, we'll hear that the next section. Any yeah, other questions? Comes the, that comes in the next section, and Very it has good. a lot to do with the Civil War. Very good. Ira, we thank you so very much. We thank you, Mike, for being here. And we're we'll talking about the next date for part three. Yeah, I don't okay, know. And what we'll did part one cover? I'm, I'm sorry? sorry? What? What, what did part one cover? I'm, I'm sorry, I missed part we'll one. We discussed transportation, the history of transportation. It was great, and it's up on AccessibleWorld.org. It's archived, and you can find it. A Fantastic. lot of it has to do with the laws of physics and how laws of they physics. affect transportation. Well, I will, we will be in touch and uh, see if we want to do it you. You know, during the, in December. Let's see what you schedule is We'll wait until Saturday. <laughs> so I'll be in touch with you. And I All thank right. you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye thank now. you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good night. Good night.